Hi, welcome back to Mattachine Meeting. This is a very special episode. I'm Devlin Camp, in case you're new to this show, and if you are, you're possibly listening from my hometown of Evansville, Indiana. Hi! Today's guest is Kelly Coors, a historian from Evansville who has a new book coming out this spring called Out in Evansville, an LGBTQ plus history of River City. That's what they call our hometown, Evansville, because it sits right on the Ohio River at the bottom of Indiana, just above Kentucky. I couldn't be more thrilled about this book. It's the first queer history book about my hometown, which did not even occur to me when I was out as gay in high school that there could be a queer history worth learning in Evansville. Kelly and I had never met, but I'd wanted to meet him for years, as you'll hear us discuss way back in 2016, in the early days of researching for the first season of Queer Serial, I found a small gem from Evansville's queer history in the Mattachine Papers at the One Archives in California, so I've been dying to meet Kelly to tell him all about it. I often describe my hometown as being like Pawnee, Indiana in the show Parks and Recreation. Pawnee definitely looks and feels like home, and Pawnee is weird in all the ways that Evansville is. That show's depiction of Hoosier characters and the Hoosier mentality really nails it. We also have the Harvest Festival, the local candy company, Eagleton, the neighboring town of rich assholes, we call it Newburgh, and of course one of my favorite locations in Pawnee, the gay bar, The Bulge. In Evansville, we call it Someplace Else. Someplace Else, or SPE, is the one gay bar I'd ever heard of in my hometown, and I only ever got to start visiting SPE after I moved away from town. It's a fabulous oasis in a very dry desert, and we're going to talk about its history today. Just for a visual, when we do talk about it, when you first walk into someplace else, after they check your ID, there's a bar and a dance floor that I've almost only ever seen totally empty, and then there's a door all the way at the back of the room to the right at the back of that dance floor. You go through the door and up a narrow staircase to this cramped, low-ceiling room it's the packed second level bar of someplace else. It's always totally alive and full of people watching an outrageous drag show. It's the best. Also, check out the images of fictional Pawnee's The Bulge and Evansville's Someplace Else side by side on my Instagram or Patreon. They look remarkably similar. Anyway, today's guest, Kelly Coors, works for the city of Evansville and has been combing through the Courier and Press newspaper archives for years, putting together Evansville's queer history through some of the last remaining pieces of evidence that queers were there before we were there. These stories he found are really beautiful and fun and strange. But also, heads up, Kelly does describe some violent crimes in our town's history, and the grisly story behind why my granny, Faye Camp, remembers in grade school that kids were always warning each other not to be a Rudy, as in Rudy Zemer, a gay funeral home director. We'll get into that story and more. Normally, these bonus Mattachine meeting episodes live behind a paywall at patreon.com slash queerserial, but I really wanted to share this conversation and encourage you to check out Kelly's Evansville queer history book, Out in Evansville, an LGBTQ plus history of River City. You'll find links to that and other things we discuss in the episode notes. You can pre-order the book now for its release in April, and if you'd like to support my mini queer history projects and get lots of bonus episodes and history deep dives, you can join my Patreon for $3 a month at patreon.com slash queerserial. One last thing. I discovered Kelly's research when he was sharing these queer Evansville newspaper clippings and stories on his Facebook, which honestly is the only thing that ever gets me on Facebook. 
my good friend Jacob Wallace would send me links to them. Jacob and I were in separate but side-by-side -side closets together in high school, so we're equally amazed by this hometown history. Jacob is still there in Old Pawnee. He's a teacher, and he's still my best girl. He got me through some of the most terrifying years of my life being queer in Indiana, and he's still doing that for people there now. And so for all that and for sharing Kelly's history with me, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Jacob Wallace in Evansville. Hey girl. I met up with Kelly on September 18th, 2022 for coffee literally on Main Street in downtown Evansville, Indiana. One of my many high schools is just down the block. We're near the riverfront, where all the juicy queer history is. Someplace else, the gay bar is a short walk away. Kelly and I totally hit the ground running before I could even hit record. Are there just okay. black musings of an old person? Well, that's, that's, that should be the title of my show, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> but I... I well, yeah, so go ahead. So, you know, my parents taught me to always be observant. Yeah. Always watch what's happening around you. I was a very late child and unexpected and my my mother married a man who was a politician and so i went to a lot of stuff yeah that you know I, most kids probably wouldn't go to political things and we went to see bobby kennedy when he came here i was like nine years old what is that about robert stadium uh, yeah. wow it was at, it was at the stadium and they were republicans but they my mother always thought if something's really going to be important i should take you Mm. And so even though I really wasn't sure who he was, you know, it's like she always told me, no, this is something you need to remember, that you were here when he was... So I've always been observant. So I, I, my mother died about 10 years ago. And so I started talking about this, writing this book with her. And she said, oh, my gosh, she said, it'll be the first history book that people will get in a brown paper wrapper. Um, it was wow. really funny. <laughs> That's was, such a good line. She was hilarious. <laughs> she was just hilarious. Um but so oh the, the idea has been in my head. So when during COVID, mm -hmm. like when everything shut down, yeah. you know, it was like all I did was leave my condo and walk to work and walk back home. But was there anything else to do? Nothing else was open. Yeah. So I sat down at the laptop and I thought, you know what, I'm going to see if I can put this together. And so I did like the outline of what I thought. So anytime you do an outline of a book... It always turns out way different than what you thought it was going to be. Of course, yeah. And um, so my husband is my husband is very young, um, and if people go when I when I married him, people were like, "What?" So I'll tell you how to reduce your social calendar <laughs> is to be white and fifty-seven and marry someone black and twenty-three. Did that alienate a lot of people? <gasps> You're uh, my social calendar immediately opened up really it really did was it, it more because of the age or the race I both I think I think there was a because mm. I had been with someone for about 20 years that I just despised and <laughs> my 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 hatred of him grew exponentially in the last 10 years that he lived with me <laughs> and so and and you know we were a popular couple I guess you know we did a lot of stuff but you know I was just it was one of those things where you just like do you remember did you ever see the movie about um, Bobby Darren and, and Sandra D. Where is it the one where with uh, Kevin Spacey? 
sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Beyond the sea. So yeah. he goes out and he takes the golf club and just beats the shit out of her car, mm-hmm. and she beats it. So that's about where we were. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I, I broke up with him. I told him you gotta go, you gotta get out. And so I, we lived out in the suburbs, and I sold that house, and I moved into the city, and where my work was, and and it just was great. And then I met, I met this this guy because most young gay people gay men especially they're like on their grinder profiles it's like no one or no one ever oh married. yeah no yeah there's married. a cutoff yeah um but i uh, we had a music we had a mutual acquaintance and this mutual acquaintance told him he said you know i know somebody that you should meet and so they basically fixed us fixed us up on an accidental blind date and uh, so i think i took him to the philharmonic i don't remember where i took him the first time and um then I was on the board of the diversity lecture series here. We had, for several years, we would bring in celebrities. We brought in John Legend, and we brought in um, Harry Belafonte. We brought in Queen Latifah. We brought in Sheila. And so wow. I was on this board, and I finally told him, I said, look, you know, it's great to bring in people from other walks of life other than, you know, white, cisgender people. But you're going to have to bring an LGBTQ speaker here, or I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to not be part of this thing. I just can't. Yeah. And so we went to work, and we brought in George Takei. Cool. And so our second date, I took him to meet uh, a movie star, a TV star. So that was because he was like on a Trekkie, you know, he likes. Yeah. Star Trek. Yeah. So yeah. So you know. The rumor was that I had him in the that I had him waiting the whole time, but I really didn't. It, that's not true. <laughs> that's true. Wow. I think we're in shade, so I can So during the COVID, when COVID was shut down, I, I did the outline of this book, and I because I, what I wanted to show was so I knew there were very few references to homosexuality before you get to the 1920s. Hmm. There, it, when you look through documented history, when you go through like, because really the history of your cities in your old newspapers. Yes, you post a lot of fascinating Evansville newspapers. So I, well, I have access to I have access to the newspapers back to, I think the one I have goes back to 1871. Fabulous. So there is there are very few references about homosexuality until you get to the 20s. So what you have to look for are words that are really unpleasant mm-hmm. today. You have to look for words like perversion. Deviant. Sexual pervert. Sexual perversion. Sodomy. Mm-hmm. You have to look for those words, and you can get back, back, back. You can get back. So I, I could go back to 1895. Wow. And I always found it fascinating. I wrote an article. I do articles periodically for Evansville Living. Okay, on yeah. City history. Yeah. And I had written one on our old red light district which the city basically supported for a hundred years. Mm. It was over where uh, Bally's Tropicana asked, or whatever you want to call the casino. It's yeah. Whatever it's named. The boat is used to week. be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so that big parking lot <coughs> in between uh, one main, there's the flood wall. There's this huge parking lot. And then you've got the casino and the casino, uh, the old, the district where I used to have a, the disco place there which I never went through because I live through the disco area. I, I will not go back. <laughs> so that big parking lot there really was its own little village. Yeah. It, was, it was a street that kind of curved through there. It was called High Street. 
And it was so, people were so ashamed of it that when they demolished all that, they wiped that street out. Really? They, they wiped the, the name of the street because everyone in the city, born before like 1950, knew what High Street was. I High see. Street was where the brothels were. When, when did they wipe out the red light? 1960. 1960. Well, that's about the time. That sounds about right. Yeah. Wow. So what you find is there are articles about sodomy. There are articles about these. The biggest thing that was going on in 1895, of course, was the trial of our friend Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and the local newspaper coverage of that was just, oh, my God, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. But the... I found two editorials. So one, there were three papers at the time, and the journal, the Evansville Journal, the editorial said that people who live like Oscar Wilde, <clears throat> the, the line is, should seek the refuge that Brutus sought. Wow. <clears throat> now, a lot of people wouldn't get that. But since you and I know Shakespeare... Yeah, it's we, a coded way of we know, telling them what they deserve. Yeah, we know what Brutus did, <laughs> yeah. don't we? He fell on his sword. So the, the editorial in the journal recommended for anyone who lived like Oscar Wilde should just go ahead and commit suicide, That's which, of course, wild. we know happened and still happens. It still happens, yeah. Um, but this was at the same time that the city administration, the county, the sheriff, law enforcement, all supported and contained a brothel district which which sold sex by women and kept them in this state of perpetual poverty mm. and degradation and thought nothing of it wow. you know polite society condemned high street but the men in that polite society all went there. Yeah, right? secretly. Right? Yeah, off the So record. it's like this, Evansville just had this uncomfortable relationship with sex that it didn't like. Yeah. You know, it supported sex that it did like. It supported this brothel district. Yeah, heterosexual when, sex. Right, but when it came to being a homosexual like Oscar Wilde, well, you just need to kill yourself. Were you finding, like, the niche gay queer spaces like that brothel that not were... that long ago not that yeah. not that far back i can't find you know i'm not i don't say that there wasn't anything like that but there wasn't anything documented well if it's not they may have wanted it to never be documented right. which exactly. is what's more likely yeah so what you find then as you move out of that era into the 20s there was a, a case one of the first sodomy trials was a guy named benny young mm. And the, he owned a taxi company, and he was quite—he was really a rounder. And it was during Prohibition, and he kept getting arrested for bootleg liquor. And, but he was arrested for sodomy. And he and, and a woman named Pearl, Pearl Money, great name. Pearl Money? Pearl Money. With oh, my God. Craig. That's a fantastic drag name. Craig, drag name. <laughs> but she was a real person. She was only like 19 or 20 years old. And there were four, there were four men and Pearl were arrested in this sodomy ring. Um, And it was the very first time that the court uh, ruled that Cunnilingus was sodomy. Really? Here in Evansville they ruled that? Yeah, Vanderbilt County in the court. And uh, it was 1922. And for about five years, um, Young and his attorneys filed uh, appeals. And it finally got to the state Supreme Court, and the appeal was, his conviction was affirmed. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a 
one of the jurists said that Vandenberg County, the quote was, set the standard nationally for sodomy conviction. Wow. So other courts would use Benny Young's, and did, for years as the model, as the, the set law, the set conviction. The other thing, Indiana had a miscegenation law. Mm-hmm. That didn't go away until 1965. 65? Yeah. Oh my God! And there were a number of convictions in Vandenberg right County here. for miscegenation, That's mainly wild. black men and white women. And black it was the black man, man that was arrested, not, not the, the white woman. woman. Wow! So we we really, like I said, in even going back to Victorian times, we had a problem with sex that we didn't like. Yeah. It's and then so then you find if you move into the 30s you'll find men arrested for sodomy and sent to prison. Mm-hmm. And these are these are uh, cases that were reported and, and convictions that were reported. Men in consensual consensual sex. Yeah. Um, I've I found one, two, three, four. So I don't, I don't have my notes with me. I guess I could have done that, but I'm lazy. <laughs> you're, I think you're I working found on a something book. like <laughs> seven. I think I found seven overtly homosexual cases where men and sometimes they would arrest a whole group of men mm-hmm. the sunset park where the museum is yeah now, that was all park space there before they built the museum in 59 the year i was born and uh, most of these men were arrested there at sunset park but there were instances yeah. where men were arrested at hotels mm. uh, you know but someone would tell on them someone would report them yeah and so the police would go in and, and arrest them um, and so that, if you get into the, when you get into World War II, you find that um, a lot of, because Evansville was like this big World War II place. We were the crossroads for a lot of um, military transport. You know, we had two passenger rail tra- stations here, the mm-hmm. l and which was on Fulton. Yeah. And then the Chicago and Eastern Illinois, which was on Maine. The, the uh, old, tra- the, if you've ever seen the Four Freedoms Monument, Oh yeah, they were the yeah. columns that were on the front of the CE and I. Oh okay. Depot. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Later, it became the USO for white soldiers. Okay. Black soldiers had to go to Lincoln Gardens, but so um, anyway, so you'll find there there are any number of arrests of military men. Lots of queers passing through town. Oh my god! And everywhere. they probably thought I can get away with something here. I'll never be back in this town again. One of the mistakes that some of these guys made were picking up underage. Oh yeah, boys. Yeah. And it was mainly at the train stations and the bus station, the, the old Greyhound. The old Greyhound. Which, I just went there last night for dinner, by the way. Saved. We saved. We saved. You saved. I remember in high school walking by that old Greyhound and thinking, like, I wish someone would we saved save it. that and restore it. And it is fucking beautiful and now. It, it's so beautiful. And, it's, uh, and if anyone tells you it's Art Deco, just slug them. Because <laughs> it's Art Modern. Yeah, anyway. that's something that I think only, um, typically only gay men know the distinction. Right, right. And, I, you know, I... I I tell people that, and they freak out. Hey, neighbor, they uh, they they just go, oh, really? Modern. Oh. And then the the old uh, drugstore up there that's closed at Fourth and Main is the other truly art modern structure in downtown. There aren't very many. Um, but anyway, so um, I so through the book, I go through the Victorian times in the twenties and the thirties with the. The arrests and the convictions. I mean, fourteen years in prison. That's a, that's outrageous. They were and the, the because it was the sentence was uh, the standard punch was anywhere from two to fourteen, and almost every case they were sentenced to fourteen years. Wow, the max. There were a few times when someone and they would of course they would print your name, your address, they would mm-hmm. print where you worked, 
you know, if you had a fairly decent job, if you were filling up, they would make the court would make the deal with you that they would suspend your prison sentence if you agreed to leave town. Ah. There was a there was a guy um, who had a, owned a business, and he was also uh, he he had a band that he that he that played nightclubs here. He was really well known, and uh, of course with my Alzheimer's, I can't think of his name out of my head. But they just they gave him the opportunity to suspend his prison Skip term if he would leave town. Wow. And so he agreed never to come back. Did you find uh, much proof of lesbian bars or trans spaces or anything like later. that? Later. Later? Later. Yeah. I, I, I definitely have found, like, a lot of, uh, not a lot, but drag history in Evansville, but not so much trans history. It very, there's not much. The, the uh, and, you know, I, I think it's only been within the last, you know, I came out, well, when I was, like, four. But, um, <laughs> you know, when I, when I came on the scene, it was the late 70s. I had uh, a friend who was uh, a drag performer, and he actually did my mother's hair occasionally. And the, the swinging door had opened on West Maryland. The building's still there. But I used to hang out outside with the other underage people. It opened in April of, 70, April of 79, and I wouldn't have been 21 until March of 80. But we used to hang around outside and listen to the music because the really good music was there. People yeah. knew that. But the, uh, Sammy, um, Samantha, I have two great pictures of Samantha in the book. Oh, really? Um, she was Miss Gay Evansville twice, 10 years apart, 71 and 81. Wow, that's fabulous. Yeah, I was the MC and crowned her at the 81. His day pageant. name was Sammy and his night name was Samantha? Samantha, yeah. That's fabulous. Samantha, Miss Samantha. She always did... Uh, uh, Shirley Bassey, you know, Goldfinger. Oh, I love anyway, that. But so Sammy pulled up and, and said, What are you doing out here? And I said, Well, I can't get in. I'm not 21. He said, Well, you are tonight. He said, Come with me. So he took me in and introduced me to Norma Black, who was the owner. She and her husband were the owners of the bar. Mm-hmm. I said, You know, she said, Hey, this is my friend. You know, I know his mother. I know he's 21. He just doesn't have a driver's license. Yeah. And she said, Okay. So, Right yeah, in. yeah, that's the way to do it. I know, <laughs> but um, so when you get into the fifties, what I did, I thought, you know, I, I only can go back in my memory to the very late seventies. Mm-hmm. I knew there had been a bar earlier than that that was an, an official, unofficial gay bar called the Pals Steakhouse. I really want to talk about Pals with you. Um, Pals, and but I. I I was too young. I mean, I knew where it was. I knew what it was. Mm-hmm. But I was like only 14, 13, 14. As a kid, you knew it was a oh, gay yeah. space? Oh, sure. Can oh, I, wow. I just was waiting for my friends. I heard you guys talking. Are you guys writers? Uh, historians. Historians? Yeah. Um, I'm more so than me, really. I, I heard one of you guys mention you. Well, I, I've got a book coming out. You do? Next May about Evansville's gay history. LGBTQ history. See, old people taught say gay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> gay can be all encompassing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, so I try, you know, I've tried to work queer into my vocabulary. Yeah, because, it's hard. You know, before, you know, when I was your age. When I, when I, a, in the was, 90s, it was a, a bad word. That was yeah. a pejorative. You know? It's hard for me to but switch we've, to queer. We've sort of reclaimed it. Yeah. And so I've tried to, I've tried to work it in instead of saying gay. You know, don't say gay. Like, what's his name in Florida? <laughs> DeSantis. I always say queer. I try to say queer. Okay, queer we'll say queer instead. Um, community. Well, I heard you mention UE, and I'm going to start in the creative creative writing program next semester. Are okay. you at UE, too? No, no, I'm just visiting. I'm from here, but I'm just visiting. All right, well, yeah. you guys have a He's good day. from... You, too. You nice to talk Chicago? to you. Chicago, right? 
Uh, I lived in Chicago for 10 years. I just moved to New York last year. Oh, okay. So I, I, I bounce all over. <laughs> well, what I did, I started, you know, I've, I know a lot of people, and I wrote the society column here for 10 years in the paper. And I knew a lot of older gay people, but I'd never really, like, sat down with them and picked their brain. And I thought, you know what? I have a recorder, and I'm going to call these people. I'm going to call people up and just see if they'll talk to me. Literally my same impulse, too. Yeah. yeah. And, and I did. They did. And they always say yes every but, time. But I'll tell you, now, this is very Evansville. The I talked to probably 10 queer elders. None of them wanted their name used. Really? At 80 years old. Wow. Still scared. Still scared. Still terrified. Since. And, you know, that's fine. I told him, I said, don't worry about it. I'll just, I'll call you Rachel. I don't, I don't yeah. care. It doesn't matter to me what your name is as long as I get the story. Yeah. So I have them all recorded. I have them all saved that's digitally. That's fabulous. So, I'm good. So I, for, for about a year from during the shutdown, I started doing phone interviews. And then once things opened up, I could like sit like we are. Yeah. And, and talk to people. It's a lot easier. Um, but there were, so the, the crux of the book, the, the, I guess the, big pinnacle of the book is to show the, the point of the book is to show young people mm-hmm. where the queer community started here you know telling us to kill ourselves mm-hmm. arresting us and sending us to prison for 14 years to 120 years later a parade on main street yeah with balloon arches that you know the downtown community paid for and the Haney's Corner, the art district, mm-hmm. the, all the merchants do First Friday. They have a Pride First Friday where there's 5,000 people in the street. 4,000 of them are straight with their kids giving dollars to drag queens. So the point of the book is how did we get from here to here? Mm-hmm. And the, the, the arc of history really starts to bend when you get into the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. I define the two eras beginning in 69. Yeah. with the beginning of the gay rights movement as the um, the modern era to me is after 69. Mm-hmm. So the modern era... Liberation. Liberation. Um, and we weren't really... In Indiana, they didn't remove the old sodomy law until 77. Mm, yeah. So we really weren't legal... You have to go over to Illinois to get fucked. Right. You, <laughs> we weren't legal until the year I graduated high school. Oh, wow. 77. So 69 to me is before the, the modern era. Uh-huh. So okay. in, during that time, there were a series of murders in Evansville that, that I think defined how Evansville looked at queer people. We're about to talk about Rudy. Well, actually, we're going to talk before that about Andy. Andy. Who's Andy? Andy was a guy named Andy Reagan. Andy Reagan. And Andy was 27, single. Um, he was from Kentucky, but he lived in Evansville. And he was a, an immaculately dressed man about town, um, had a smart set of friends. He drove a, a black and cream 1954 Chevrolet that was just immaculate and drew attention to wherever he went because it was a custom job. Uh-huh. And he worked for a trucking company. And he stopped at the Coral Room, which was at the McCurdy hotel which was where the smart set went you know okay the smart he stopped set. in there one late one night in september of 54 had a couple drinks and talked to his friends and then he left and said he was going home to go to bed well he, no one saw him again they didn't see his car they didn't see him for a week they looked for him though his parents looked for him everyone they offered him, the parents offered him. they were from 
Kentucky, Glasgow. And uh, so the, the search was on for this young man. No one, no one could imagine what happened to him. Well, he, his body was found uh, on old US 60 near Henderson. Wow. Um, and he'd been bludgeoned to death with a tire iron. His head, his, he had been beaten so badly that his head was completely caved in. And the coroner, uh, Tap was his name, said that he'd bled so profusely that even his underwear was covered in blood. Oh, my God. Soaked in blood. And they said whoever killed him kept beating him long after he was dead. My God. And, you know, that's a crime of passion. Yeah. That's not robbing somebody. That's not stealing their car. This whoever killed him really wanted him dead. Yeah. So, the clues that the police found, it, very cagey. I've, 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 com- I've completed and submitted a, a FOIA request, hmm. but I don't know if the state of Kentucky will offer, because all the criminal record, all, it's all in Kentucky, because mm-hmm. that's where he was killed. Even though the FBI got involved because it crossed a state line, um, they never did find out who killed him. There were clues. He lived at the Audubon. He had an apartment at the Audubon on Riverside. And in the apartment, the newspapers said they found you know, not only his clothes and his personal effects on that, but there was a cache of letters from men all around the country. Wow. And so we know that queer men used pen pal, mm-hmm. mail forwarding services, and these letters were from Nashville, St. Louis. Friends all said, you know, that he drank a lot mm-hmm. and he'd been going through some depression. But he went out of town on the weekends. He didn't hang around Hensel on the weekends. He went to St. Louis, Nashville, Louisville. He, he traveled around. But there were all these letters that they found. And so the police started sending letters to the men that he'd been corresponding with. None of them would respond. Of course not. They wouldn't respond. Yeah. And... Um, he had one of the secretaries, she and her husband had fixed him up on a blind date, mm. and that apparently didn't go well, because they said, you know, he, he, he didn't enjoy it, he never saw this woman again, and, but they all said, you know, he had no women in his life. There was a tea room in, just outside of Henderson, called the Montgomery Tea Room. The only things in his, on his person when they found him was a pink comb, uh, a handkerchief, and a book of matches from this tea room, the Montgomery Tea Room. Mm. And so the, 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 the reporter for the press went to see the woman that owned it. And she told him what she told the detectives, that she knew Andy, mm-hmm. and he was a frequent guest at her tea room, and that for several weeks he'd been there with the same man, although she, he'd never uh, introduced yeah. her to him. Yeah. He, she didn't know who he was. You know, she knew what he looked like. He was big. He was tall. Uh, he was, you know, a little older than Andy, but they'd been in they'd been in this place several times um, up until the day he disappeared. Wow! So six years later, they found his car at the bottom of the Muskegon River, just outside of Detroit, Michigan. Wow! And they identified it from the number on the engine block. Uh, the The seats were gone. The glove compartment was gone. Um, the odometer only had like 4,600 miles on it. He'd only driven it 4,600 miles. But they, but whoever, it had been dropped, it had been pushed off of a 200-foot cliff mm-hmm. into this river. They these were covering it up. These fishermen found it. These fishermen found it. 
Um, and then, so they, they had letters from some guy in Michigan that he'd been, and this, the one guy in Michigan that they talked to admitted that he'd come to Evansville, but it was in like May. Hmm. It was months before Reagan disappeared. Huh. Um, so the, no one ever came out and said that he was gay. But if you read between the lines and mm-hmm. if you read what was, you know, if you're on the right wavelength, you know what was the going on. The clues are there. Right. The pink comb, the handkerchief. Right. I mean, even the stereotypical clues are there. It's, you can put it all together. He was, all, he was just, he was always perfectly dressed. He always looked perfect. He always smelled like aftershave. Wow. They said that he was always just perfect. Everything had to be perfect. That was in 54? 1954. So then in 1960... Um, there was a man named Burdett, and Jack Burdett was unemployed. He was 36. He lived in Evansville, lived with his mother, um, and he, in the old days, the old YMCA, uh, which is apartments now, yeah. but, um, the upstairs of the Y were um, sleeping rooms. Okay. You know, if you, if you were young and just in town, just, just came to town, you could go and get a room at the YMCA and live there for a small amount of money mm. until you got settled. Yeah. And there were like four floors of these little sleeping rooms. So Jack Burdett would frequently take a bottle of whiskey and go get him a sleeping room at the YMCA. And one of the elders I talked to was there the night Jack Burdett was killed. The It was about 3 a.m. and um, there were one... So Jack Burdett's room had a window that faced Vine Street. It was on the fourth floor. There was a room behind him, and then there was a room across the hall that were occupied. And at about 3 a.m., um, there was, the, of course, Indiana Bell's right across the street. Uh-huh. So there was a guy working third shift at the phone company. And he looked, this was November 3rd, 1960. This guy heard glass break. And he looked out, when he looked out, he saw this man lying in the sidewalk, just in his boxer shorts, but he was covered in blood, and there was broken glass all around. And so he called the police, and he thought, he, he thought someone committed suicide. Mm. He thought someone jumped out the window. So, um, to make a long story short, across the hall from him was a 21-year-old uh, guy who had come to town from South Carolina. His name was Holcomb. And Holcomb finally confessed that yes he he Jack Burdett had come to his room knocked on the door about two o'clock and asked him if he wanted to come over and drink some whiskey mm-hmm. Burdett was about 36 I think 35 or 36 and so he did he went across the hall and he 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 said that um, Burdett wanted to perform a sex act mm-hmm. And he said he let him do it because he wanted to... He said it was the only way he could think of to get out of the room. Mm. So he let him do it. And then he said that Burdett pushed him to do something else and and was trying to force him to do something. That Holcomb had been a, um, a, a, a boxer. Ah. In the Navy. He'd been in the Navy. He'd just gotten out of the Navy. He'd been a boxer. So he said he put him in a boxing hold and Burdett went in their struggle that Burdett, when he broke out of his hole that he crashed through the window and fell to the sidewalk below. Oh, wow. And he said he didn't say anything because uh, he didn't know what to do, so he just went back to his room. Well, that story might make sense, except that um, when he was found, Burdett had two 12 by 15 pieces of cloth that had come from a shirt stuffed into his mouth and throat. 
uh, and he'd been beaten, his, his face had been beaten um, so badly that the, none of it could have come from the fall. Wow. So they arrested him and charged him with first-degree murder. So Holcomb's mother and father and his twin sister, they drove up here from South Carolina. They hired a guy named Howard Sandusky uh, as his attorney. And so Sandusky um, came up with this defense that um, he was defending himself. He was defending himself from a homosexual attack just like a woman would defend herself Mm. from an attack. Mm. And that, you know, it was just in that struggle that Burdett happened to fall out the window. And, And Holcomb said that he he ripped those two pieces of cloth and stuffed them in his mouth because there had been some robberies in the building and he didn't want anyone to think that he was robbing him so he didn't want him to call out and yell and mm, scream. Sure. Well, the jury acquitted him. Of course. They acquitted him. Um, and then he said he was going back to South Carolina but about a month later he was arrested at the Y again. He'd been living with another man um, on Chandler Avenue and had apparently stolen the guy's wallet. Ah. And they found the guy's wallet on him. So he actually, Holcomb actually did go to prison, but for petty larceny. He served 90 days at the State Farm. <laughs> All it took was stealing a wallet yeah. to actually get punished. Right. Yeah, it, it, it's okay that he murdered this man, threw him out of a four-story window. That's outrageous. And I tried to find Holcomb, um, but he died He died in 90, 1994. He was 55 when he died in South Carolina, so he, he did go home. Mm. Uh, but no one can find anything. I called the newspapers there and so then if you move up three years you get to the murder of Rudolph Zemer which was a horrible thing yeah I when you posted that story on Facebook my friend sent it to me he he was sending me your history posts all the time and my stepdad worked at Zemer my former stepdad worked at Zemer at Zemer Fountain Terrace uh what's that at Zemer or Fountain Terrace oh sorry at at Zemer Funeral okay he worked there um like all through the 90s when I was a kid well now remember so what you have to know is that Rudolph and his brother Ted were both funeral home operators. Oh, okay. And they were together up on First Avenue until 53. And then they got into a fight about money. Oh, I see. So his older brother Ted opened Fountain Terrace. I see. And couldn't use the name Zemer. Ah. And Rudolph and his two sisters, Elizabeth and Agnes, they continued to operate Zemer Funeral Home. I see. Until his murder. Until his murder. And then the brother bought it. And renamed it all Zemer Funeral Home. That's how his brother got oh, to use Oh, and it the all name. came back. I see. But Rudolph was basically, he was an alcoholic, and um, he'd been arrested for uh, sodomy for several several times, never convicted. Mm-hmm. But he would all, he was in the paper many times. I assume he was a wealthy businessman, so he probably got he out was. on a lot of charges. He did. He got, he, he, you know, he always had a good attorney. But he went to, he, st- one, in March the 12th um, of 63, Nobody really knows where else he went that night, but he stopped at a place called the Old Kentucky Barbecue mm. on Kentucky Avenue. And when he went in, he was really drunk, and the bartender wouldn't serve him. The bartender gave him a glass of water. And so he got into an argument, some sort of an argument. The waitress that testified at the trial said she wasn't sure what started the argument. There were four uh, GIs on leave from Fort Campbell at a table that had just come in. They hadn't been there very long. And they'd started fighting with him, yelling at him, and he was yelling back at him. So the, the bartender made the four leave, mm. and so they went out to the parking lot, and Zemer went out to get in his car, 
And when he got out there, two of them got him in the front seat in between the two of them, and they got in. And then the other two got in a car that had pulled up with two girls in it, and they all took off. So during the course of the next three or four hours, um, Zemer was beaten, strangled with his necktie, and this group of young people drove his car to the foot of Weinbach Avenue, which was flooded. The Ohio River was over flood stage, Mm. and the road was closed, so they moved the barricade, drove his car, and uh, William Thompson, the one GI that signed the confession, said that he and the other two pushed Zemer's car about four feet into the water, left the engine running, and left the transmission in drive, shut the car up, and then they left. Mm. So when they found him, of course, he drowned. He had drowned. Yeah. And the uh, police went to, him, to, to Fort Campbell, and there were only four that had been on leave to come to Evansville that night. And so they found all four. Well, one of them was passed out in the car. One of them wasn't involved. But Patrick Peary, William Thompson, and uh, Robert Graymount were the three that were arrested for this murder. Thompson was the one signed a confession. The other two didn't sign a confession. Were they convicted? No. They uh, they each had a each of them had a separate attorney. Mm. Our friend Howard Sandusky mm. was the attorney for Patrick Peary, who was the youngest of the three. And um, the two girls were held as material witnesses that they'd been driving around with. Carol Sue Gentry and Melvina Shutt. You have a great memory. (laughs) And uh, so the trial happened in 64, in November of 64. And the three attorneys all petitioned to have separate trials for their clients. Mm. Um, But the judge said no, that he was going to that he wanted them all tried together, which is what set it all up for a miscarriage of justice. Oh, really? Because they all each should have had their their own trial. Um, But Thompson was the one that everyone was worried about because he'd signed this confession. Mm. And ironically, the thread of irony that runs through LGBTQ history is just as deep as the Grand Canyon. His attorney was the prosecutor who prosecuted Rudolf Seamer for his last sodomy charge. Wow. In <laughs> Small town. Yeah. <laughs> My God. So the, the trial happened, and the, the defense, none of the three defense attorneys called any witnesses. All the witnesses were prosecutorial. Mm. Um, and at the end of the trial, the defense attorneys all put Rudolf Seamer on trial. Mm. They all said, you know... Um, these young men, and the, the press at the time talked about what sterling records they'd had. Because by the time the trial happened, Peary had married the one girl that they'd spent the evening with, that had driven around and witnessed everything. And so the, the media kept talking about this one, because they'd had a baby in the, in the year and a half that had passed. Yeah. And the, the attorney kept sitting his wife and their new baby in front of the courtroom, so the all-male... Warwick County jury could of see course. them. <laughs> so at the end of the day, um, the jury returned not guilty verdicts for all three. And the f- jury foreman said that, that really Thompson, the one that drove the car into the water, pushed Seymour over onto the seat and then left the car and drive, really was the one that was guilty. But 
since they all were tried together, the jurors decided that they should all have the same verdict, whether it was guilty or not guilty. Wow. And they couldn't say for sure that these other two um, did anything that really resulted in Zemer's death, that only Thompson could. So he gets to get away with it. So they all three got away with it. That's outrageous. There was also jury tampering. There Uh was a juror that was seen the night before the verdict. There was a juror that was seen at the old Kentucky barbecue where Rudy had met his fate um, the night before uh, the juror and uh, Patrick Peary and oh, William Graymount and his girlfriend who'd been uh, one of the girls that was held as a material witness met with him the night before the, the uh, jury was to deliberate. Wow. Sketchy. Totally sketchy. That's outrageous. So that was the third killing of a a major a a known name in the city yeah reagan reagan was never determined to be reagan was never out right he never it's all coded yeah it's all very coded burdett was never really out but we know what happened in that room yeah because of the testimony of the killer Zemer was clearly a miscarriage of justice. Mm-hmm. So then, in 1966, there was a there was an antique dealer, auctioneer, owned his own auction house. He was 27. His name was Ken Sanders, mm-hmm. and Ken Sanders lived in a little apartment on First Street. And Ken Sanders, it was in it was about three years to the day almost of Zemer's murder. Wow, that's an odd coincidence. Uh, yeah, and well, I told you the thread. Uh, Sanders was. Uh, he was single, and he, you know, he had no women. He, he, he was obviously gay. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of the some of the elders that I talked to knew of him, didn't know him personally, but knew of him. And he was really kind. Of, he was really handsome. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at these pictures, I've got pictures in the book of, of Sanders. And mm-hmm. um, but late one night in March of '66, he'd picked this guy up named James Stutzman, who was 27. Also, they were the same age. Mm-hmm. And he picked him up, and I guess taken him back to his apartment. And a, uh, another young man that knew Ken had stopped at his apartment real late. It was like 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the morning. And uh, was going to borrow, get some money from him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he saw this other guy come out of Sanders' apartment. And asked him, say, is Ken there? And he said, no, Ken's not there, but you know, I know where he is. And so he got this guy to drive him around. You know, and he was like wiping blood off of his hands with a handkerchief. He had, and he said, because this guy, this this guy said, you know, well, what happened? And he goes, well, I I had to beat a faggot up, and I got blood on me. Uh, and so he was wiping his hands off. So this young man that was driving around, he flagged down a police car. He finally got rid of him. He flagged a police car down and said, there was a an officer that um, he knew that was younger, you know, on the force. And I talked to this guy's son, who's almost my age now, huh. and, and I missed talking to this officer by maybe three or four years. He's been dead just maybe three or four years. Oh, man. Mm. But So he met this guy, and they went up to Sanders' apartment, and they found him. He'd been His face had been beaten in with a, a flat iron. You wow. know how women used to have yeah. to beat an iron on uh-huh. the stove? And there was blood everywhere. Oh, my God. Everywhere in this apartment. And Sanders was, he was, the newspaper made sure to tell everyone that he was just in his underwear. Mm, of course. Um, you know, yeah, because he's and, a pervert. Right. And um, so Stutzman, the, 
this is so uh, this is so weird. They took this young guy back to the police station, uh-huh. and this officer said, well, "I wanted to talk to him so badly." This officer said, "Sit here a minute." He said, "Do you think you could recognize him if you saw a picture of the guy that you drove around?" And he said, "Yeah, I could." I, he said, "I got a good look at him." Yeah. Went back in the file room, came out with a photograph of this James Stutzman, and the guy said, "That's him." And the officer in the in an article I found said when he was asked, "You know, why did you pick?" this photograph and he said well it was just a hunch hmm hmm but we based on a hunch they didn't they didn't the media didn't go past that and ask him you know what was your because that's what I would have asked him what was your hunch yeah had he been had he you know had he been uh, an abuser of homosexuals in the past yeah maybe he was known for doing that did we but we don't know. We don't know because he didn't. Cargus is dead. I couldn't interview him. And I asked his son, and he said, no, he said his dad never mentioned that murder, never mentioned that crime. Mm. Um, but anyway, so they found Stutzman and arrested him for mm. first-degree murder. So the prosecutor, his name was Kylie, and they they moved the they moved the case to Newburgh since <laughs> Ken Sanders was well-known and a lot of publicity about the murder. So they moved to Newburgh. So even, so in October of 66, even before jury selection started, it was announced that um, Stutzman, who lived to be 81, he died in Indianapolis. Uh, I found his obituary. Um, Stutzman pleaded guilty to manslaughter. Mm. Wow. And was, I think he served two years. The prosecutor, Kylie, in an interview with the Evansville Press, said, and this is why I think these cases were the, the arc that turned everything, the prosecutor said that there was this intimation that there was homosexual advances made by Sanders to Stutzman when they were in their in his apartment drinking, and that's why Stutzman killed him. And the prosecutor said that when there's this homosexual angle to the murder, it would be impossible, Im, he used the word, impossible to get a first-degree murder conviction in Vandenberg County. Wow. Just because it's queer. So that's why he let him plead guilt. He made the deal to plead manslaughter. Uh-huh. He said that, you know, he'll serve a little bit of time and he'll carry the conviction, but that's why it would be... Imp- and it wasn't until 81... That I, I interviewed this, les- this lesbian. Um, she's 77, 76, 77 years old. There was a girl named Laura Lubahusen. Who, and I knew Laura's girlfriend, Darlene, just peripherally. In 81, there was a lesbian who was murdered. Sweet girl, pretty, pretty blonde, um, Laura. And there was a guy named Thomas Shiro, who was just fucking crazy. And a, and a sick, sick guy. He was living in a halfway house. Hmm. And he'd been working at this machine shop across the street from where Laura and her girlfriend, Darlene, lived. And Laura had, had, they had only moved in. They'd only lived in this place for maybe three weeks. And Laura, she had a little, a little kitten that she'd adopted. And the kitten had gotten out. And so she was out combing the neighborhood for it. She went in this machine shop hmm. and asked the guys if they'd seen this little kitten. And they all said no. But Shiro was living in a halfway house and working there on work release. Hmm. And so he took a chance one evening just right after that went across the street told her 
that he missed his ride and he needed to call someone to come pick him up and could he use her phone and she let him come in to use the phone and he murdered her god raped her murdered her abused her corpse god tore the place up her girlfriend had been on a ski trip and had stayed the night with her family and was coming home the next morning when they found Laura she'd written this note uh, it was all it, the note had blood all over it was like you know don't come in don't come in don't come in call the police don't come in so oh, she'd okay. slipped it she tried to slip it under the door I guess but they'd found this note horrible murder that's terrible and Shiro's trial was in um was in uh, Nashville, Indiana, a little bitty town mm-hmm. north of here. And um, the defense tried to say that, you know, Laura had invited him in. That, mm-hmm. you know, of course, that, it's her fault. You know, he was, you know, it was victim shaming, victim blaming. Well, Darlene, they, the, the prosecutor, Darlene agreed to testify, and Darlene took the stand and testified that no, Laura was a lesbian. Mm-hmm. She the the thought That's of incredible. sex with a man a man was repulsive. Used her queerness as a defense. Yes. That's fantastic. Yes. Wow. Well then he'd also stolen all of their sex toys. Uh, of course. And they found hit <laughs> the sex toys that he'd stolen. And the defense made her identify each one. Mm. And tell the jury what they did with them. Of course. But she did it. Darlene did it. Yeah. It, it completely tore her up. She she left she left Evansville. We had a fundraiser for Darlene um, at the swinging door. It's really painful for me to remember. Yeah, so that. is Darlene still around? She, I think she moved back to Illinois. She's from Illinois. I, I don't think she's still here. I, I haven't. If she is, I haven't seen her in 40 years. <laughs> but um, you found a lot of history of, of but that was murders. The, that and... was the first, it was the first time that, and I think that's, I think it changed the trajectory. You remember that arc I talked about? That trajectory yeah. that ended with the prosecutor saying, you know, I can't get a conviction on capital crime when there's homosexuality involved. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the jury convicted him of capital murder mm-hmm. and sentenced him to life in prison. Only a few years after that first judge said that. Fifteen years. Yeah. That's, 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 that's a quick turnaround, really, 15. in the grand scheme of things. In the gra- Yeah, that's... And so from there, there were several other killings that I cover in the book, that, but they all ended in capital murder convictions. There was a priest... Wow. It was a, a murdered at, at Sunset Park in '84. There was a, a furniture dealer, a used furniture and appliance dealer, who was killed in '80, '92. So from there, we I, I have a lot of I have articles of things that happened in the '60s and the '70s uh-huh. in terms of queer culture. Uh, there was a there was a uh, the <laughs> the ladies of the evening that worked the streets yes. in the 60s. Okay. They made a formal complaint to the police about cross-dressers stealing their business. Uh, oh my literally, god. Literally. Stealing their on this their, very street? On this very street. Oh my goodness. On this very street. That's they, fabulous. And there was an article that a, a reporter actually I know I've, I should have talked to him before I finished the book because he's still alive but he wrote this article about the gay life mm-hmm. and in the article he he found one cross-dressing prostitute who would talk sex workers don't say prostitute right right sex worker um who interviewed with him but he he called him the gay the gay the gay the gay said this the gay said, the gay said, oh said my that God, that's fantastic. <laughs> i love it oh. i love it I've, and so in the book i i put that in bold of course as the you gay. should the gay, <laughs> the the gay. gay. and oh. so you know i, I kind of go through the the 80s when tri-state alliance was formed which um 
but uh, in the early days it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, was that to fight the AIDS crisis? Well, ARG, there's a chapter on AIDS in, this, in Evansville. Um, I was on the board of the AIDS Resource Group from 93 to 99. There's only so long you could look at it then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, my God, so depressing. But we had, one, and in the book I talk about several things that happened. There was a black ballet dancer. He was a choreographer for the dancer. His name was Myrian Taylor. He was gorgeous. Um, but he became the face of AIDS for a few years. Um, he died in 92. Mm. He was only 39 or 40 when he died. He was known as the face of AIDS in town here? Yeah, he was the founder of the AIDS Resource Group. I see. I he, see. There were several. There was a social worker. There was a... Um, I, and I, you know, I wish they'd all survived. Richard Franz, who was a caseworker at Stepping Stone for addiction counseling. There were all these people that came together and formed... The AIDS, and it was formed in 80, late 86, mm. but I, I talk about, you know, the early coverage of AIDS where it was like, you know, oh, people don't need to worry about that. It's only mm-hmm. these people. I've seen some of your articles that was like, it's in Evansville and it's happening. Like the headlines right. were like, get deal with it. It's really here. It's real. There was a, a friend of mine. His name was uh, Larry. He's so sweet, sweet guy. He worked at the pub, which was over on Division Street. He was a bartender. And he got a bad cut on his hand. Mm-hmm. It was in March of 93. And he went to the hospital, went to Welburn, which was over here then. Mm-hmm. And the nurse wouldn't touch him because he told them, you know, I'm HIV positive. I'm H- he told everybody, you know. Yeah. And the nurse at the emergency room wouldn't, wouldn't treat him. Mm. So finally they found, they found a, a doctor on call that would, that would treat him and they stitched him up and when he went back to the pub a few days later, um, Bubbles, uh, the guy that owned it, he fired him. Of course. Well, Larry sued. Really? Through the, through the EEOC and the ACLU. They both represented him. And um, Bubbles settled out of court for $25,000. Um, and there's that thread of irony uh-huh. because the pub in... The last decade for a couple of years was a gay bar called Scandals. Oh my God, I went to Scandals. <laughs> I went to Scandals. That's so great. It's in that same building. That is fucking fabulous. I bet, I mean, so you, you were born and raised here, mm-hmm. I, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I bet you found all sorts of things. It's like, I never knew as a kid that was a queer space or that was well, a bar uh, or that was a I knew Pal's Steakhouse. I, I could take things back. And though the one elder that I talked to who was just terrified to have his name, God bless him, I love him to death. Um, he was the first, he organized the first professional drag troupe here. Really? There, where Fifth Third Bank is, uh-huh. there was a hotel there. My mom worked there. Called the Vendome. Oh my God. <laughs> the Vendome Hotel. And in the back of the Vendome was a, a, a bar called the Town Room. Mm-hmm. And the hotel was on the skids in the late 50s, early 60s. It was like um, transients stayed there. I mean, mm-hmm. it was not good. So my the, the fellow that I talked to, he went to the bar manager and he said, you know, I can fill this place for you every Friday and Saturday night if you'll let us. Because drag had been in private places, people's homes. They rented, uh, there was a party house out on Oak Hill Road called Brenner's Party House where the, the drag troupe would come and perform and people would come and see them. And, but they were always raided. They would always get <laughs> raided. Mm-hmm. The, AB, the Alcohol Beverage Commission people would just dog these places. And so the manager said, you know, okay, well, we'll take a chance. So he, he, wait a minute. Oh, go ahead. I'm going to show you a picture. 
your 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 audience can't see it. That's quite all right. Um, but I love <laughs> this picture because he performed as the dazzling Denise Nichols. Oh my goodness! That that picture is from 1962. I can tell it's 60. Oh yeah. my god! Beautiful. Yeah. The hair. But he uh, he had four others with him. And he was the dazzling Denise Nichols and the Nicolettes. The Nicolettes. Oh and, my God! Uh, they 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 were at the Vendome. They uh, they played them from '60 until '64 when the bar the management changed and they kicked them all out. Basically. They never got raided. Well, they would get raided. The alcohol beverage would come in, which is interesting. A story he told me, and I put it in the book. But even though I can't document it, you know, is that um, the guy that was the head of the ABC, his son was queer. Mm. And his son would would come to those drag shows. Isn't that always the story? <laughs> and whenever this Weber was his name, whenever the ABC guys would come in, because they would mm-hmm. just turn all the lights on, they make everybody line up, and they check everybody's ID. You know, it was a way of creating terror. Of course, yeah. And but whenever they would see them come in, they would tell his son they would hide him in a mop closet. <laughs> <laughs> they would hide him in yep. a closet. They would hide him in a mop closet. So wow. that his dad didn't find him there because his dad always said, if you find, he always told me, if I find you here, I will beat you to death. Yeah. And so they would hide him until the so ABC guys would leave. And you know, fa- flash forward just a few decades, last night I was at SPE at someplace else watching a drag show with my friend who's a <laughs> and his <laughs> there is super homophobic. That <laughs> son is Kid Blink, the drag queen. Love that. And they were just killing it at the drag show last night it was just like i love kid blink He's and every good. time kid blink walked out got the most applause mm-hmm. the most excitement just like if their parent knew <laughs> that's what happened to tracy dallas tracy my, dallas my who was that friend, my, well tracy was a drag performer she was miss gavinsville in 1985 mm. but she fled from new York, from louisiana mm. she had a terribly abusive father who found out she was doing and she was really transgender Tracy was one of the earlier transgender people that lived. He, you know, Tracy lived as a woman, lived by that identity, not Ken, not Kenneth, uh, his dead his name, dead name. Yeah. but Tracy Dallas. And everyone knew, everyone loved Tracy Dallas. She was just, just an amazing friend, good friend. Um, but that same thing happened. He was going to send her off to one of those uh, recovery camps, and uh. she climbed out the window and had been performing at a bar with queens from Evansville. Mm. And they loaded Tracy up in the car and drove her to Evansville, Indiana, and hit her until she turned 18, when her dad couldn't come get her. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. Get her out of there. Got her out of there. But uh, so there was a a, a straight couple named Clumper loved those drag shows, the Vendome. And at at the corner of Fulton... And Division, or it's Lloyd Expressway now, it's just an empty lot now, but there was a, a supper club there uh, that was named the Pals Steakhouse, and the guy that owned it, he it was too small. He wanted a bigger operation, so he sold the Pals to the Clumpers, and he built a new one up Division a little way. Um, uh, um. Anyway, so uh, the Clumpers bought that place, and they told Paul... Denise Nichols, they said, we're going to convert this into a gay bar. We want you to do the shows there every weekend. We will pay you to come and do shows. And that was the 4th of July weekend, 1968, Mm. was the night that it opened. And it was the the center 
the very first official center of queer culture in Evansville for about six years, I think until 74. And what was it called? The Pals. Oh, okay, this is The Pals. I Wait, see. Oh, they were opened in, in 54, right? No, it opened as a steakhouse in as 54. As a steakhouse in 54. But it opened as a gay bar. And, and in, sorry, remind me of the intersection? Fulton and Pennsylvania. Fulton, Pennsylvania. Okay. There's an ashtray. Oh, that's fabulous. That's the only artifact I could the find. Phone up 423. Lively entertainment, nightly for your listening, dining, and dancing pleasure. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. My grandparents remembered a gay bar at an intersection, and I believe that's the intersection they said. I actually wanted to show you this. That's it's related it to like. Pals. That was when it was Ward's Steakhouse. I think you posted built. this on Facebook, I did. right? I yeah. Yeah. Because I was struggling so to find an image. No one took pictures of the Pals. Why would they? Yeah, it's just a random you? steakhouse it's, or you know, whatever. The problem oh, with yeah. Americans is we don't value the present no. until it becomes the past mm -hmm. and then it's too late and then yeah. grab that building before it's gone yeah but the the uh, yeah that's the only artifact i can find from the pals and that was from a friend of mine uh george who did drag as rachel evans in the pals days oh wow and um, so i have some stories of the pals in the book and and um, then after the pals there was a place called ramones um on bond which was open a few years. The ABC, there's, I've got an article from 75, I think, where the alcohol beverage agent said that their license should be revoked because their clientele consists of homosexuals, mm. which gives it a bad reputation. You know, taverns are supposed to have a good reputation. A good reputation at the tavern. And <laughs> the fact that they serve homosexuals means that they should lose their liquor license. Wow. But what's, I think what's interesting about Evansville is from the days of the PAL, to the swinging door with Jim and Norma Black, to someplace else with Ellen Campbell, because she owned, she owned a place called Campbell's that became the cabaret, which was a lesbian bar mm. for many. I mean, it was, I used to go to um, to the cabaret once in a while. I had some lesbian friends. You know, lesbians, and gay men didn't have anything to do with each other until AIDS. Oh yeah, yeah. They were totally yeah, separate communities. Totally separate communities. Yeah. They clashed, but they did collide. Yeah, it was not. But when Laura got murdered. Because the swinging door was a guy's bar, pretty much. We invited the lesbian community in. We did. They did a fun. Uh, Tracy Dallas and Jeanette, and uh, they all did. They did a big charity. They did a big fundraising show to raise money for Darlene. Because she, I mean, it was she had to move. She had to get everything out of that house. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was a crime scene. She couldn't even get in and get her shit for I forget how long. And it was just. Nightmare. It's horrible. Even though they weren't legally married, you didn't have legal marriage then. Mm -hmm. they, they were just roommates. Of course. So, but we were, I forget, I think we raised eleven, twelve hundred dollars that night. That's fascinating. Um, but the people who owned and operated and started these places to have queer community were all straight. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were straight women. Yeah. But, but Ellen Campbell said that when she bought someplace else, um, a few years after she bought it, she decided there was a there was someone had died, and the family wouldn't allow a funeral, or they wouldn't allow any queer people at the funeral of this person that died, and someone told Ellen about that, and she said, "Well, you all come here." She said, "You can have your memorial service here at her bar, at her new bar," and that whew, she. So it wasn't gay before that. No. 
It was what, what it was called someplace else. Yeah, it is the best gay bar name I've ever heard. Out of everywhere on the planet, someplace else is a brilliant. It was a, a Republican brilliant. hangout. That's crazy! It oh was my a god. Republican well, I guess that does make sense why it would be a gay bar then. It was right here by City Hall. Wow. The Republicans gathered there. The Democrats gathered at the pub. The oh Republicans my went to someplace else. When did she open someplace else? 1990. 1990. And then it opened as a queer, queer bar in 93. 93. Wow. My goodness. It's I, Halloween. I was there. Halloween 93? We, we started the evening. It was 70 degrees outside. And uh, when we came out, it was snowing. It was a crazy, <laughs> crazy night. I'll never forget it. Do you remember what else happened that night? Halloween '93. Yeah, would you remember what you dressed up as? Or oh, I, I didn't dress up for Halloween. I my joke was I I always went as a suburban homosexual. <laughs> well, I am trying to uh, interview Belinda. We've kind of had one back and forth messages, but it hasn't worked out. But I want to talk to her about the history of, the, of someplace else because it's one of the most fascinating gay bars to me. It's the only one I've ever known in town here, and I, it's, it's one of the longest running gay bars I've ever been to. Well, there was. Uh, in the book, I talk about uh, the My Way, and then there was the My Way to the other side, which became Club East, out on Morgan Avenue. It burned. It burned down. Mm-hmm. It almost burned down one night. Do you know who Jeanette Weil was? I don't think the so. The drag queen. Okay, so on on YouTube, I want you when you have some time, go on there and find Jerry Springer surprise. I'm a transsexual part four. Okay. And you'll see Tracy Dallas and Jeanette Weil. Jeanette, her, her boy name was Jeff. And they lived in, they were best friends, these two queens. And Jeff was living in Florida. And Jeanette was here, or Tracy was here, Jeff was in, Jeanette was in Florida. They hadn't seen each other in a long time. They were on the one of long telephone conversations one night. And Tracy was watching the Jerry Springer show. Mm-hmm. And there was this advertisement, you know, are you transsexual and your boyfriend doesn't know? Call 888-blah-blah-blah. Tracy said, bitch, I've got a way. We're going to get together and get a vacation. <laughs> Tracy called the Jerry Springer show, said, you know, I'm transsexual and my boyfriend doesn't know. So Jeff had, they went on Jerry Springer. I mean, everybody who knew Tracy had their VCRs set I to bet. record the Absolutely. Jerry Springer show. But it's all on there. And you can see, you can see Tracy when she was lovely and just so young i mean this was 1997 i think um but jeff had to dress straight and act straight (laughs) act like he didn't know which is the funniest part of the whole thing (laughs) all right so uh you were born a man he doesn't know this he doesn't know this Uh, uh, you've been together for five months five months okay he's here because he knows you're going to tell him something about the relationship he's been outside the studio so he hasn't heard what's been going on let's bring him out now huh jeff been seeing each other for four or five months now and I feel that we get along and we do things together and we like the same things and we really click and stuff but you know we haven't really we've messed around a little bit we haven't done nothing but uh you need to know that I was born a man Jeff, don't go over there. 
That's not any. <laughs> oh, where was I? You had no clue. <laughs> Why don't you, you talk? Tell me this. Yeah. <laughs> they, they made a deal. Tracy said, you know, you can do anything you want to, but don't snatch my wig. Oh, okay. So what does Jeanette do? That's exactly snatch what she does. Snatch that wig right that's, off first That's thing. the first thing, as <laughs> soon as the cameras are rolling. you got a great uh, attitude about this, Jeff. I mean, you really do. Uh, uh, He's a nice guy. Yeah. I was. I can't believe did this. <laughs> It's just, just I can't wait to see that. It's a it's I everybody had that recorded at one time. <laughs> Poor Tracy died. So my husband and I were at um we were at lunch one Sunday. It was um, December of um, eighteen. And Tracy messaged me on Facebook Messenger and she said, Girl, she said, I'm on the street. She said, I've lost my she was on disability. She said, I've lost my place. And she said, I'm at the library and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you stay right there. So part of my job, I work. we fund uh, homeless agencies here in town. We fund seven of them and, and work with them. So I called my friend Susan Steinkamp, who was with Aurora. And I said, do you, I said, do you know Tracy Dallas? She goes, oh, yeah, I know Tracy. And I said, well... She's at the library on a library computer. I said, she's lost everything. She's been put out of her place. Mm. And I said, can you... She said, I will go get her. So I messaged Tracy back. I said, just stay right there. I said, Susan Steinkamp is going to come get you. And so Susan got there, took her. Um, they found a room for her, a bed at Osnum, the family shelter. And so I told Susan, I said, make sure you let me know, you know, what's happening with, with Tracy. And within like two weeks, Tracy was like the house mother and all the, it's a family shelter. I think there's seven families that live there. The, the parents would be off getting their drug counseling and they would drop their kids at Tracy's room. She was, she had crayons and Aww. coloring books and she was like the house mother. And so Susan was telling me, she goes, well, we've got, we think we have her a permanent apartment and I'm collecting furniture and, um, you know, we've got, we've got her back on her, on her, um, hormones we got her back on her medication and um, Tracy was an addict Tracy Tracy's addiction was stronger than she was mm. and in February it was the end of February Susan called me and she said that Oslin had to put Tracy out because they found uh, drugs mm. in her room yeah and I said well where is she and she said well we don't know she said that they put her out and it was, I mean, it was like cold. But they found her in a, a garage. Uh, she'd overdosed and, and died of hypothermia. Oh, that's terrible. I know. But, you know, it... She lived a magic life, that old bitch did. Yeah. And um, we had a... Uh, there was a service for... 
they always do Aurora at uh, Trinity Methodist. They do a service once a year for people who died in homelessness. And, mm. You know, I made we made sure we had a memorial service for Tracy at Patchwork Central. They're they're such nice people at Patchwork. Mm. I don't know if you've I never uh, on I Washington. It's the old actually it's the old Jewish temple on Washington Avenue. Is uh, this the kind of stuff you do? Art district. Okay. Is this the sort of stuff you do for the city now? Yeah. With the community. Oh yeah. That's really fabulous. Um, but there was another drag. Uh, uh, sister uh, Rachel Malone and and Rachel right after they found Tracy um, Rachel called and said um, I've got an extra cemetery plot that we are not going to need at sunset and she said there's a cost to open it and inter the ashes but she said if you'll help and I said yeah we so we went to work and raised I think we raised twenty two hundred dollars just on Facebook and and just to get her things. a plot, get her a plot, and we got a uh, got a, a marker. Uh-huh. Um, so she's she's at rest in um, um, a place. She's at Sunset. Is um, Sunset is that related to the park at all, or is this something different? Sunset Memorial. It's out on the north, uh, off of um, First Avenue. Okay, Sunset, uh, that's Memorial beautiful. Park Cemetery. Yeah, and uh, the actually, I think the owners of the cemetery, um, Rachel Malone, uh, said that. Um, the owners of the cemetery recognized the effort that the community was making, so they donated the marker. Hey, hey how are you? Good to see you. They donated the marker uh, for for Tracy, but you know we had we've had several that passed away just penniless, and you know we had to raise money for Belladonna, um, another icon. I've got a lot of several pictures of Bella in the book. Um, when she died, we had to ship her back to Kentucky to get her buried. Oh my. The family said they would bury her, but they didn't want to spend the money to ship her back there. Mm. So we we raised the money to do that. Well, I have a little piece of Evansville history for you. Don't die poor. Don't die poor. That's, That's good advice. advice. That's good advice. Don't die poor. Most of us queers do yes. <laughs> tend to die poor. Um, when I was doing, and I may have said this to you like a year ago, I honestly cannot remember if I ever did, but I kept meaning to when I first discovered who you were. Um, I was doing research at the One Archives in LA um, when I started researching the Mattachine Society, mm-hmm. and they had the list and the finding aid of there all the major here. cities. There was one here. I found their three papers. They had three sheets of paper out of all the like cities that had giant... You know, bankers boxes full of papers. Evansville had one folder with three sheets of paper. And have have you seen these? Paul Paul is the name. Um, I don't know if you want to look at that. That's the first page. You can zoom in and check it out. But they were meeting at Pal's Steakhouse. Yeah, yeah. Seventy-two. Yeah. I can send you those three pages. Oh, would you do that? That would be lovely. And my granny, I I read her the the pages, and she recognized that name. She recognized the yeah. name on there. That's Dazzling Denise Nichols. Is that Dazzling and Denise Nichols? And the Nicolettes. My grandma would have a connection to the faggots in town. That is so her. The grand, oh, the, the grand, the grand cotillion ball, 1972, was, it was held at the Coliseum, uh, June 3rd, 72. There were 200 people at that cotillion. Oh, please send me this. Yeah, and then they just shot that episode of We're Here on HBO. Oh, yeah. Oh, at yeah. The, at the same venue. At it's the Coliseum, yeah. Fucking beautiful. That's what I'm telling you. Is like the thread of... It's all right there. History. The right here. Of, the thread of irony, especially with the pub. And yeah. Poor Larry. He was humiliated. Oh, I bet. Humiliated. But he turned it around. He turned that around. He became uh, one of our... We, that was when I was on the board at ARG. 
and we put him to work. We gave him a job, mm. and he became a, a speaker around the state mm. to speak on his experience and what happened to him and, and how he sued, how he got in touch with the people who, who, who filed suit against mm-hmm. him. I mean, he was a, he was a, oh my God, he, he turned that, he turned that into something. You know, one of the things that I tried to feature in the book were, well, I was going to tell you that with, with AIDS and the ARG, it was really hard to raise money at uh-huh. the beginning. It was like nobody was like, oh. but what would happen, we had these sons of these wealthy powerful families that came back here to die mm-hmm. there was uh, uh, I've got profiles in there of Sam Ryan and his parents um, they 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 produced a CD of music from do you know who John Streetman is no, I don't think he so. was the director of the museum for years and years okay. and years he was also a prolific songwriter and musician and the, the Ryans produced this CD in memory of their son in 1996 they had Broadway. Tim Ewing and Cary Gray came and, and, and recorded this CD, and they brought a band in from what from New York. Mm. Had a huge party at the museum. You know, our little board, we were like, is anyone going to come to this? It's $100 <laughs> a person. That room was full. These were people, these were friends of my parents that were there that had no idea what AIDS even was. Wow. But they were friends of the Ryans. And there was a, a Tim Wright um, who died? He was uh, the Wright Wright Motors mm. uh, Cadillac dealership. His sister Anne is a real good friend of mine. She, as when Tim died, Tim was the art director for Turner Broadcasting. Oh wow! He won an Emmy for his art design at CNN News. Wow! In 1978, he was a brilliant guy, and he died at 41. I think he was 41. so young. But I have a great picture of Tim and his sister. Mm. When they were when they were real young, you who know. else would have ever captured all of this Evansville AIDS history? Like, who would think to come I down? Don't. Like, that's really what you're, what you're doing is really fantastic. Well, I, I just I thought the more I thought about it, the more I thought you know somebody needs to write this shit down. Uh huh. I've been saying it too, the same thing. But you've actually done like I mean I knew like Rudy and like various stories here and there, but really not that much. You've done something you to, that's you really, really you have, really have dug. You have to really dig. Yeah. Because it's not, you know, it's sort of like. And Evansville, it's like black history here. Uh-huh. You post a lot of fabulous black it's, history, too. It's not out there for you to see. Uh-huh. You know, we the winners write the history books. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And as we're finding in Florida and Texas and, you know, mm-hmm. erasing, mm-hmm. you know, slavery from the history of the South. It's like, what? Yeah. But it, like, it, it's black history in Evansville, you have, there's very little that's like named after black people here. Oh, yeah. Everything's <laughs> named after white people. People. Yeah. Um, Even in in like growing up in school, I mean, when we were learning about his, his lynchings and slavery and everything, I never had imagined until very recently that lynchings were happening here in Evansville. Happened right on that corner. Happened right on that corner. You post all kinds 1865. of 1865 fascinating black history in Evansville. That like up until the 90s, like there was there was amazing stuff happening. And I, you know, like we're so segregated here. That never even penetrated my mind until I was an adult that black people would have a history in this town. It's nuts. Huge. Huge. Deep and, and, and deep. Deep history. Yeah. Um, you just know everybody, don't you? Kind of. Well, that's what happens when you never leave home. Right? Well, that's, that's good. You make yourself a fixture in the community and you know and it well. Like, I could have left, and, and, but I don't know. My best friend lives in San Francisco. Oh, yeah? 
on Filbert Street. Okay. And for like five years in a row, I would go out there in the spring mm-hmm. in, in in the 80s and would spend time there. <laughs> I would just wander by myself, you know, yeah. through the Castro and uh, just... And I, I thought many times, because he told me, come here, mm-hmm. bitch, come here. That's and where my he gay cousin went. Me. He went to San Francisco and no one ever heard from him again. And I, I just thought, you know, my parents are here. I have my own dry cleaner lady. <laughs> yeah. I have my bank teller. You're comfortable. You know, I know the lady at the post office that takes care of my packages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I did the same job for 30 31 years then they kicked me out with a pension it was okay but then Lloyd got elected mayor and brought me in the administration and I just you know I thought well I've spent my life here so I might as well do something that means something for having not left mm. and so this book is that and you you're what a fantastic gift back to the city this, this is that and I told my aunt who is gay she lives in North Carolina now um, she's my one gay relative that I know of besides the cousin who went mm-hmm. to San Francisco and um, he died of AIDS but he never came back to Evansville um, sorry for that yeah it's it, my grandpa slowly uncovered that cor- story for me because even he didn't have a lot of the details but it was his cousin um, who was just uh, ousted by the family for being gay and, and then he died but anyway I, that uh, happened a lot I, oh I'm sure yeah I mean his story is one of millions like that in San my Francisco my stepfather's business partner yeah they owned Citizens Realty and Insurance. And um, his son and I were about a month apart in age. Mm-hmm. And we knew each other. I mean, they merged their companies when we were like, I don't know, 10. And John and I were John and I were, were good friends. And we were out to each other. And when it, our, both of us, our favorite movies were the ones with Rock Hudson and Doris Day. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> and... In those days, it was before you had, like, a recorder or a VCR or anything. Whenever Pillow Talk or Lover Come Back was on, like, the daytime movie, uh-huh. we would call in sick to school. <laughs> and we would get together and watch. I would either go to his house or he'd come to my house. And we'd watch the Doris Day Rock Hudson movie. Oh, that's fabulous. And he moved to Houston after college and worked for a magazine there. And... Um, because you know, nothing about me ever changed. I had the same phone number for like a million years. But he called me. And he said he, he'd just come out of the hospital. And he, he said he still he had AIDS. And he said, I'm dying. Mm. He said, I know I'm going to die. But he said, I wanted to talk to you, bitch. Um, I just wanted to touch base with you and see if you remembered watching those stupid movies. Uh, and I said, oh, my God, yeah. I said, I haven't seen you in forever. And so we talked about high school, and, you know, he asked me, you know, like, okay, well, who's queer that, that I would know? And, I, you know, I named a few people, and, and he's like, I knew that. I knew he was gay. I knew he was gay. <laughs> it was a great conversation. We just laughed, and, and I felt so bad. Um, and this was, I was on the, this was 95, I think, 94. It's hard for me to remember years. But about a month later, after that phone call, his sister called me. To tell me that he died. Mm. She wanted me to know. And while well, I cried all day, I couldn't leave my house. Yeah. So a little time went by, and um, so I called his house, his, and I got his mother, Jane. 
And I said, you know, I said, hey, I, you know, I, I know John passed away some time ago. And I said, I saw you didn't have a funeral for him. They were Catholic. And I said, but, you know, I just want you to know that uh, I'm on the board of the AIDS Resource Group. And if there's anything that we as a board can do to help you, you know, I want you to know that we're, you know, we, we recognize John's value and, and that, you know, if there's anything that I can do, you know, John was my friend well, since we were 10. She said, I'll tell you what you can do. And she said, do not call me again. Oh, my God. She said, it was you people that killed my son. <laughs> and she said, you need not ever call this number again. She hung up on me. Wow. So I called my mother. I called Felmy. <laughs> and I told her what happened. She said, oh, honey, Jane, she's, she's just probably very upset. She said, I'll call her. And I said, okay. Well, about 30 minutes later, my mother called me back. She said, I feel like I've been in a prize fight. <laughs> she said, I thought I was going to have to drive over and slap that woman up the side of her <laughs> head. She said, I would have ripped that beauty shop hairdo right off her skull. They oh must God. have really got into it. Wow. And she later she told me that Jane had mentioned me and that I'd probably changed him uh -huh. that somehow I was responsible she hated me she hated her you know I hate you I hate your husband I hate him and mm -hmm. oh my god well it's like my mother's not she goes I almost drove over there I said, <laughs> I said well I'm glad you didn't it would have just been she was grieving she was she was grieving but she did blame of course all of us yeah and yeah. that oh my god wow that's hard when I look back when I look back at, at all of that know COVID kind of brought a lot of that back to me I bet you know? yeah it's, it's another pandemic it's, but you know in the case of COVID everybody got together to figure out a way to well that's because it affected all it. of us not just the perverts I know yeah and it when you read the when you read the book and you read that chapter on it you can see the articles in the paper how they evolve uh -huh. from being it's only Haitians and promiscuous homosexuals on the coast well maybe it's some other people and then Ryan White and then Rock Hudson and then women and it's like oh my gosh well it really does affect everybody and by then it was like ever too late it's, it's everywhere. too late yeah. it's too late well, what you're doing with this book is like it's such a fantastic love letter back to the friends that you lost well, that, that their legacy gets to be preserved in your book they were their lives matter my my I have a friend who lives in San Diego who's a nurse. I think it was 93 or 94. We had a friend who was, we knew he was going to die. Jimmy Skaggs, he's so funny. Um, he loved Judy Garland. He loved the over, he loved the Wizard of Oz, which mm -hmm. was Jimmy's favorite movie. Yeah. But Tony, my friend Tony and I, he and I used to, we'd take vacations together. and um, Just, we were just, I mean, if, if we'd been girls, we'd have been sisters. Uh, <laughs> But Tony, we were we were going to go to Saugatuck in, in this one August. We'd rented a cabin, and I, do you know about Saugatuck? I've heard of it, but I never the been gay, there. The little gay resort, yeah, that's up yeah. There. We'd rented a cabin, and we were going to spend a week doing nothing but chasing men. And um, he said, he had, he called me. He said, he said, would you mind if we took Jimmy? I said, oh, my God, no. I said, we'll have a hilarious week. <laughs> and he said, well, Jimmy doesn't think he has long. Mm. And he said he really wants to take one last trip. 
so we took Jimmy with us and he shared our cabin with us. We had a great, we had a great time. And I guess Jimmy met up with another guy. And oh, he was older. This guy was older. Well, I say that now. He's probably 10 years younger than I am now. But um, we, he brought this guy back to our cabin. And of course, we kind of, we sat in the living room. They were in the bedroom. God, they were just crazy. So then we heard, we heard the shower go on. And we heard, after a little bit, we, we, we heard, you know, Jimmy going, oh, 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 making all these noises. Uh-huh. Tony went, oh, he is just having a ball in there. And so a little bit, and the guy came out, he left, and Jimmy came out in his little Judy Garland bathrobe with his <laughs> hair in a turban and sat down, and he was like, oh. And Tony goes, well, bitch, you must have been getting it on in that shower. We heard you out here. He goes, oh, no, the hot water ran out. <laughs> And he, I think he died. I think he died about. I think that trip just wore that poor thing out. Well, that's what he needed. He died right after. He died like right after that, like maybe a month. Wow. But he had to. He just wanted one last vacation. No, we weren't dead with the hot water ran out. One last night out with the girls. (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah, I told my aunt. uh, I just visited her in North Carolina that you were writing this book, and she was like, "It's a gay history book about Evansville." I was like, yeah. She's like, it's just Evansville, and it's gay. Like, she just like could not wrap her head around. It's hard for some. You know, people have told me. You know, I had once word got out. I had one of my one of my mother's friends. I saw her at lunch one day, and she just she said um, she was. I heard about your book. I said, really? She goes, yeah. She goes, are you using people's names? <laughs> it's still so repressed here. Well, the, the title, the book, I, the title of the book that I wanted to use, the publishers already changed it. Oh, uh, I wanted Evansville colon confidential. Yes, because of the old magazine, the confidential magazine. They used yeah. to out people. That was their stock and trade. Yeah, and the, the my publisher's rep, he said the he said our committee has decided that only people your age and older will know what that means. I guess that makes sense. I guess that doesn't make sense. I know it because I'm a historian. Right, right. But most it, people my age wouldn't. They wouldn't understand it. So the, the, the title will be Out Evansville, an LGBTQ history of an Amer- of a river city. They so know all those words. Right. They know they know out, out LGBTQ, LMNOP. And I told them, I said, you know, if I'm going to make a little bit of money off of it, I don't care what you fucking call it. Yeah. I don't care what you put on the cover. Call it big hair, don't care. <laughs> but you don't make a lot of money. And people think, you know, I had someone say, you know, uh, you're trading our history in for a buck. Oh, you my know, God. It's, As if our history ever made any bucks. It's actually, <laughs> when you write a book and you work with a publisher like I am, it's a professional publisher that takes care of everything. You really make eight cents on the dollar. Mm. That's not much. It's not much. It's penny. That's literally pennies. <laughs> My husband wanted to know when I told him what I was doing, and I said, "You're probably going to have to do some things with me when the book comes out." Mm. He said, "Well, will it make money after you're dead?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, it probably will." He it said, may. "Then I'm in." It may. It could be option for a movie. You don't know. Um, he said, "I'm in." Oh, I won't. I mean, you never know. But the publisher said, the, and I have a great rep, um, he said, you know, one of the reasons they decided to pick it up, even though it really is a niche mm-hmm. in a small city, he said that he thought, and the, their, publish, whatever they, their publishers that make decisions based on a, a, group, a committee, that they thought it would have a fairly wide appeal because it's kind of a universal story. You know, every city of 100 
thousand people probably has a queer culture history to it. Yeah, yeah. But nobody records it. Yeah, it's not like New York or San right. Francisco. Or, yeah. there, are, there are books about queer New York, mm-hmm. about queer L.A., yeah. about... There's one about queer St. Louis. Yeah. There's yeah. one about queer Cincinnati. That there was even a folder of three pages of of organizi- organizing happening in Evansville is fucking shocking because there was nothing that big happening right. here. That's it's right. really astonishing. And the the efforts to have and what I, I call it an organized queer community. Yeah. You know, it, you can have a queer community, but if there's no organization to it, yeah. If there's not a routine if there's not places to go, ways to communicate, mm-hmm. ways to socialize. If there aren't these things, you don't have an organized community. Yeah, Tri-State Alliance was formed because of threats of violence in the downtown neighborhood. Mm. That's where queers used to cruise around down here, First Street, um, Locust, around the old post office. They used mm-hmm. to, and there were people getting beaten up, strangled, stabbed. There was a guy got stabbed. It's always um, on the waterfront. Yeah, it was. It was terrible. And that's why Tri-State Alliance was formed. The two lesbians that got married that we're here... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yvonne was one of the founders of Tri-State Alliance. She, really? she hates my guts. Oh, wow. <laughs> that goes back a long... I I'm can, not surprised. I can, tell you, I can tell you all kinds of stories. Uh, but yeah, that, the, uh, that Tri-State Alliance was formed because of that and worked really hard to reach out to elected officials, to reach out to people in power that, uh-huh. hey... This shit has got to stop. Yeah. These people are dying. They're getting maimed. They're getting crippled because of these people that are beating them up with baseball bats. Yeah. And that couldn't be stopped until things got and organized. It couldn't. And yeah. so you, you had to have some sort of organization. But the, having that organization, having bars where people were welcome. You know, Ellen, I end the book with a quote from Ellen Campbell. Mm. Ellen, in, there was a newspaper article about her bar and the drag queens that uh, Melanie and Michelle, who live in Key West now, um, I have their stories on tape, and they are hilarious. Um, but she says at the end of this article, her la- and I end the book with it, is that for her, it was important that people have a place to be because being yourself is what matters. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And to do it at someplace else is it's secret. It's safe. You know, even when we were here, what I thought was really interesting was that when Eureka was in that fireworks shop and she was in drag and that gay guy said like, y'all going someplace else? And she said, where, where, where are you going? And he was like, someplace else. And it like proved that like, it does feel like a coded gay bar yeah. name that like even the drag queen doesn't know what he mean when he said, you going someplace else? I'm doing a drag show. Sweet. What? Hey, someplace else. Oh no, right here, right at the Coliseum. Yeah, I wouldn't kid you. In New York, um, in the world during the the 40s, of course everything was clandestine. Mm -hmm. There's a movie, I have also a section on movies that came here and played here with gay themes in the book, but there's a movie called Advise and Consent. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Watch it sometime. Yeah, See if you can find it. Because in Advise and Consent, there's a senator that's being blackmailed because of a homosexual liaison he'd had when ah, he was in the military. Yeah. And he's he the the person he'd had the affair with has sold letters and photographs the two had exchanged to this blackmailer. Ah. He goes to try and find him. And he goes into it was it's a it was America's and Evansville's first look at what a nineteen sixty one gay bar looked like. It was dark, it was downstairs 
Frank Sinatra records are playing, and all these Nelly men oh, yeah. are, fond, are fondling each other. Oh, wow. And he's just, like, repulsed, and he just runs out of it. Um, but in New York, in the 40s and the early 50s, mm-hmm. servicemen that were coming in town, if they were queer, they would go to bars that had bird names. The Yellow Canary. Interesting. The Eagle. The Robin's the Nest. Yeah. Because gay bars, the code in New York, the gay bar scene, was you adopted a, the name of a bird. The Yellow Parrot. I've never heard this bird yeah. thing. That's fascinating. It's, it's, it, it's the truth. I believe it. It's I believe tr- it. That sounds it, like us. That's in, but uh, that's how... Native sailors and, and yeah. arm, or anyone in the military that would come into town, they would they would look for bars that had a bird name wow. to it. I've heard the thing of like going to the bars where they have the signs that say "off limits to military," which makes sense as a very obvious gay code. But the bird one is even more subtle. That's very smart. Well, I won't keep you. Uh, I already kept you longer than I asked. I know. That's <laughs> but, okay. Uh, I have been hoping to meet you for the longest time because my I have a few friends that send me your posts all the time. Oh, well, good. History. Well, now so it's spreading it, really quickly. Well, you know, I, I sent you my number. Yes, yes. And you've so, got mine. And you're going to text me those little three pages. I will. I, I absolutely. Your book comes out next year, right? May. In May? I mean, like I said, you don't make a lot of money. So people no. are like, you're trading your history. I get, I get that sometimes, too, with my work. And I'm like, you think I'm making a lot of money on this? You think I am? I'm doing this to, like, get me to other jobs. So I'm, getting ready, <laughs> I'm getting ready to retire. Okay. From from government. and Because uh, I'll be 65. Oh, right, yeah. okay. oh, wow, really? Yeah, in 24. Um, so I, what I'd like to try and do, I would love to be able to teach. Yeah. I would like to teach local history. Oh, that book's going to lock that job up for you. I would like Absolutely. to teach local history. I think it would be like just one class at Signature School or something. I went to Signature School for a semester and I got kicked out. <laughs> I couldn't keep up. It was just so hard. Well, my line is I've been thrown out of better places than this. <laughs> That's what I should have said when they kicked me out. You do it with a snap. <laughs> do it with a snap. I'm out. This ain't nothing new for me. I did bring this for you. I don't know if it, it's got some of my oh, cards, my work, yay. and like some fun Mattachine oh, stuff sure. and buttons and a little sticker. How do I subscribe to you? I'll subscribe to your. The, the, yeah, the info's on there. The okay. website's queercereal.com and okay. it can guide you through. There's an episode guide and everything. Yeah, um, you know, I didn't put this in the book. My friend, I did. I do talk about Mike Wilson in the book. He was the. He was the one that got Norma and Jim Black to convert the swigging door into a gay bar. Oh, okay. And he was about, he was about 10 years older than me, nine years older than me. He was beautiful. Uh-huh. He was six foot two. He had, a, I mean, but I walked in there, I was 20 years old. And he, whoop, zeroed in on me. Uh-huh. And started sending me drinks and, you know, invited me back to his place and, and and I just fell madly in love with Mike Wilson. And I didn't realize that, you know, he was going to move on to the next 20-year-old that came in. Of I course, didn't know yeah. That. But it was okay because I got it. I mean, yeah. it's like, so we, we became really good friends. And I remember this, it was in 19, it was 1980, was in July, I think. So it was his birthday. A bunch of us took, we're going to take him out. They, do you know what the executive inn was? The old hotel down Yeah, yeah, down by the casino, right? Had the big yeah. restaurant on yes, the first floor. Yes, I remember that, yeah. So there were, I think, ten of us, and we were taking Mike out for his birthday before he had to go to work at the bar. Yeah. And there was one, um, Jerry Blankenship, he was in drag, 
Well, he, he did drag her down. He did drag her down. That shirt's so funny. He went on Halloween as a glory hole. So oh, funny. my God. He was hilarious. But so we got to the front, the front desk of the buffet of the restaurant at the hotel. And the maitre d' said, well, I can't let all of you in. Really? And I said, well, it's not crowded. You know, and he says, no, there's too many of you. Uh, and he said, I especially, he pointed at Jerry and Drag, and he said, I especially can't let that one in. And Miss Blankenship said, what's the matter? Have you never seen a ballerina before, bitch? <laughs> and just started making, and I told him, I said, you know, he, wasn't, he wouldn't let us in. Yeah. Wouldn't let us in. And you know what? There wasn't a thing we could do about it. Yeah. There wasn't anybody we could call. You know, today we could go down to the Human Relations Commission. Mm-hmm. We could file a complaint against them for discrimination. We could sue them. Yeah. But in 1980... Very different world. We had we just had to go someplace, some other restaurant. We had to go someplace else. We had to go someplace else. <laughs> we couldn't... He wouldn't let us in. And there wasn't anything... And, you know, I don't think people your age appreciate that. I totally agree. People take our spaces for granted. Like, it's like in uh, 2018, I was working at the Chicago Diner on the Gay Strip there on North Halstead. Um, and it was after Pride. And uh, Mayor Emanuel at the time sent the cops through to close all the gay bars at like 10.30 p.m. And our, the diner was just closing and we were all about to go out to Pride because we've been mm-hmm. working all day. And we saw everyone, saw everyone coming out of the bars. And I was like, what the hell's going The bars are shutting down. And I walk up to a cop and ask like, what's going on? And she said, talk to your city about it. And nobody seemed to care. They were just quietly walking the trains. Like, you people don't have any appreciation for like how historically wrong this is yeah. right now. You could yeah. say something. And so I wrote a piece for the Chicago Reader about it. And I Good talked to the new mayor about it, Lori Lightfoot, who's a lesbian, but a freaking joke. And, and, and even she found a way to still shut the gay bars down just a more creative way with the with the barriers on the street by keeping them open, mm-hmm. but not allowing people to get to the gay bars right. the right. next year. And it's like, if right. even the gay mayor is going to do this, but people my age have absolutely no appreciation for the rules and the 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 laws that we have to protect our our, our spaces. Jim Crow. Jim Crow. It's it's a Except weird. Jerry Blankenship called it June Crow. June Crow. Oh my god, <laughs> that's <laughs> fucking genius. He, he called it. He was so funny. June Crow. Oh my god. Wait, we were leaving this. He goes, "I'm a victim of June Crow." <laughs> <laughs> I just adored him. That's he was so funny. At the swinging door. I was standing in line to get a drink. It was Halloween night. And this little queen dressed up like Joan Crawford had a mink on those big, big lips and the big hair and the uh-huh. hat on top of the big hair. And, and he kicked me and he said, are you a good witch or a bad witch? <laughs> Some people go both ways. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. All right, well, you go on your way. Thanks so much for joining this literal Mattachine meeting with actual Mattachine meeting notes. You can take a look at them on my socials. And if you know someone I should be interviewing, DM me on Instagram. Contact me on QueerSerial.com or at QueerSerial at gmail.com. Thanks. You can pre-order Kelly's book out in Evansville, an LGBTQ plus history of River City right now, wherever you get books or at the link in the episode notes or on my Instagram. You can also join my Patreon to support and enjoy all my many queer history projects. That's at patreon.com slash queer serial. Follow me on Instagram at queer serial for lots of amazing history, including that Jerry Springer clip and just simply queer serial.com for the episode guide, bios, everything queer serial. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.
Let me take this opportunity to thank you all, all for being on this show. You've all been great sports, and I hope it works out for you. You know, as we've seen today, we're not always the sum of our parts, particularly our body parts. Recognizing then that our guests today didn't choose their predicament, but rather were born to it, perhaps the rest of us can be less judgmental, less critical, and more understanding. Indeed, if you buy the biblical notion that our bodies merely house our souls, if some remodeling of the house makes life more bearable, then why not? Certainly everybody's somebody, but it's not always the right body. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.